Hello, everybody, and welcome to Libromancy, a podcast about the magic of books. I'm Josh, and today we're going to be talking about Sin Eater, the second book in the Iconoclast series by Mike Schell. So let's slay with the magic of books. Now, uh, let's just talk about this. This is the second book in the series. I don't know if it suffers from second book syndrome. It definitely suffers from something. I don't think you can call it second book syndrome, though. I think I would have to call it copycat syndrome because it felt incredibly similar to the very first book. To the first book, not the very first book. There's only one. So let's talk about just some non-spoilery things first. The name of the book, Sin Eater, is a bad name. There's literally one scene about Sin Eaters. And this name kind of made me want more, or perhaps they talk about being like what a Sin Eater is more and how it works. And they do a little bit, but it was not enough to justify a title. And you could take the Sin Eater out and the the reason they needed them, and it's basically the exact same story. So I did not like that. Um, Let's see, what else was there? Like I said, it is... A very similar plot to the first one. I don't want to get into it quite yet because that will be part of our spoiler talk. But another thought I'm having is that Mike Shell, for some reason, still has very little trust in his audience that they're going to pick up on things or notice things. As I was reading, I would see the same thing once or twice, and then I would know that it's going to come ahead, or things were very clearly foreshadowed that. Maybe he could have had just a teeny bit less foreshadowing, or instead of less foreshadowing of who the who was going to have what's going to happen to who, maybe they he could uh, throw in some some red herrings, just anything like, oh look, this person we thought this person might be the next you know person to come with them on their quest. Oh no, it's actually this guy. But it's pretty much just laid out straight, and it's not bad. It doesn't produce a bad book. It just produces. A weaker book, at least in this situation. <clears throat> so now this book does have one of has a couple of my like little pet peeves. One of them was the uh, a real world word in a fake world. Now this world word was Holocaust. Now obviously Holocaust is referring to like the type of event. It just you could have chosen any other word because Holocaust has such connotations to it didn't really fit with the story to me. Now, technically, it probably works, but that's a technicality and not like a, yes, this really works on a great level and makes everything much better. The, one of the other little pet peeves I had was somebody is mentioning something, talking about some writing on the wall, and they're like, oh, this bears a resemblance to the Azkayan language, like, you know, where I was captured and such. And then that, when the next character is like, oh, so it's Azkayan. And the guy's like, no, it resembles Askayan, as in they may have shared a language at like some point in the past. I just hate that reduction where somebody's like, oh, this looks like this. And then the next person's like, oh, it is this for sure. 100%. No stop. It's all their fault or whatever. And the guy's like, that's not what I said. I didn't say that. I said it was like that. And that's just one thing that sometimes kind of drives me a little bit crazy, and I saw it, and I was just like, <clears throat> no, didn't like, get it out of here. So I think 
That's really all I have for the the non-spoiler section. Very similarly, it was very similar to the first book. Just the characters feel very real, but still somewhat one-dimensional. They have moments, and then they don't. Everybody fulfills a very certain, very distinct role. There is nobody who's just there or thrown in extra. The atmosphere, like, I felt like this one I learned... I felt less in the world than I did the first one. And maybe that was because the first book was new and this book is a little bit more familiar that they didn't like treat, teach me anything. Or like, I didn't feel more involved in the world. So again, nothing was crazy, un, like crazy illogical or didn't make any sense while I was reading it. Uh, so, all right. So let's go into the spoiler section. Let's kind of get into it. And let me just first say that I I predicted a lot before this book. I don't remember my exact predictions from the last book, the first book that I had, but I'm pretty sure I was pretty close to the prediction that the new gods, you know, Belu and all these other gods, were the gods of the Dijau, or a subset of the gods of the Dijau. And I was both right and wrong, where the gods of the Dijau are the new gods, but they are not in fact gods. They are basically just super sorcerers who've bonded with like a heart of the world. We'll put that in quotations. It makes them immortal and that they can draw power from suffering. So obviously the book is not going to get into how they draw power from suffering, but that they can, right? Because it doesn't have that much time and well, the gods are not our main characters. So why would we be seeing things from their point of view all of a sudden? Now, I did have one question about Timolus because, all right, well, let's get to this first. Well, I knew, or I had predicted that killing Timolus would be up on the on Oryx's to-do list. I did not expect Timolus to be the first god they go after. I honestly thought they'd go more about the gods in the, the Jiao ruins. They would go in, kind of unseal one, kill it, and then come back and be like, yeah, this one is dead. I got this one that was here going after Timolus was that was unique and surprising I liked that that was like okay yeah they're going after Timolus they're gonna save the queen or the queen will die because she's you know a skeleton basically that's gonna be great you know getting rid of this big thorn in everybody's side but then I was when I go get to the end and we're like oh Timolus he's he chose he basically put this all in motion in order for them to kill him and I was like wow okay that makes sense like i see that he's bored of everything he wants to die you know he's done it all but i was like man it wasn't like he didn't have any other way he has to feed on so much suffering and like the sword's been around quite a lot of suffering like you can't give it that little bit of juice there at the end so now timolus he says that he chose because as they were divvying up on their turn like how they were going to basically pull the suffering out of people. And Timolus says, I choose folly. So anytime somebody makes a mistake or does something foolish and they suffer for it, that's all, I get that power. And I was like, doesn't that encompass everything? Because no one's perfect, so obviously there's going to be some folly. How does that How does that work exactly? Like, if Belu, who is the god of healing, who takes the suffering from wounds and healing-type you know, situations... So if somebody trips, which is folly, or like forgets something and hurts themselves, then they have to go get healed for the suffering. Like, who gets that suffering? Is it Bellu? Is it Timolus? I just felt like folly, while 
makes sense and it works really well for the god of chaos and mischief and, and surprises just was like folly is really pretty all-encompassing like what what don't you get sub what don't you gain power for and if you're gaining so much power like you know couldn't you have just been like okay here's what i'm gonna do i'm going to disband my church we'll distribute all the folly i'll stop taking it then i'll weaken on my own and then you know the sword can kill me easier no okay doesn't make sense so i okay again we're at the end here of the book we skipped straight to the end of the book but i knew that Ark was going to kill himself basically as soon as they started talking and they were like it's where we can't kill him okay well Ark, you're going to kill yourself to save agnes and I, as much as I liked that, I didn't like that because I liked Arik as a character and I wanted to keep following Arik. I'm not as invested in Agnes. Oh, and this is something I should have brought up in style. We actually have multiple point of views. We have Arik and Agnes and occasionally others, but I just, they felt like they had the same voice. Like if I didn't, if you didn't read carefully, they read as almost the same character. So you had to be was am I an Ark or am I an Agnes? You couldn't just kind of tell. So that was one thing. Now, I said it earlier and I am going to talk about it now. So let's go through the shot-for-shot shot remake of this book. The book starts with Arik at home. There is an inciting incident. The first book, Agnes comes to his house to pick him up. Oh, wait, no, sorry. Agnes is sick. They send a letter. The second book, Agnes comes and picks him up to do some work on a special expedition for the Cyriac League. For the League. They get to the city, they visit the League, they visit the Queen, she gives them the quest, uh, sets them off on it, they leave. They go on a journey. Wow. They go by boat for part of the journey. They stop in a city where somebody almost gets in a fight with somebody else, and they almost get kicked out. Wow, that again happened. They go to a temple. Great. The temple is the site to a, a god's actual power. They go there. Perfect. They... Meet the god and kill him. Done and done. They go home. Done. Now, this one skips a lot of the going home section, but it does happen. She, Agnes is back at home. So like you can see, it really is a, a almost shot-for-shot shot remake with different characters and different a different destination, a journey, but they're very similar in plan. So it was, it was weird reading it over again. I did not in, really love that. So now let's talk about our uh, our characters a little bit here since we have them now. We have Agnes and Arik, of course. They are both swordsmen. She uses a rapier. He uses the Dijau sword. they pretty smart, pretty capable, kind of get the bloodlust going. Then we have Sira. She's back, the cleric. She's good at healing. She's very positive. She played a very minor role in this book. She really did not stick out as much as she did in the first book. And I was a little bit disappointed in that because she was a good character. But then you have Chauka and Quilb and Kenna. And they are Kenna's a swordsman. Chauka is their thief. He is from a troupe, a theater troupe, and he's kind of kicked out and they take him with them. And then we have Quib the sorcerer, who is a, a broken sorcerer. So he has no stone restricting his abilities or power and can do a lot of very cool things. Now, Quib is a little bit of an interesting character. He was captured by the Eskayans, put his soul in a jar and his body in a kind of like a preservation tank, and then they pulled him out 
and sent him off to war and, you know, controlled him that way until he broke free. And he is, he's a good character. I liked him. He had good points. I really liked that he, he turned, he's there in the middle of a, the temple and they're talking to the Vedana. She's like, oh no, nobody goes past the throne. I will stop you. And so he turns them to stone, but he's like, yeah, I promised I wouldn't spill blood. Well, I didn't spill any blood. I turned them to stone. And it's like, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I love, where you follow the rules, but you still came out on top, and you played a trick, and it was well rewarded. I loved it. You know, he's... But then, sorry, I'm looking at my notes here, and I'm like, but he does go blind right before the final, like, chamber, basically, where Timulus is waiting for them. And of course, that's exactly the same thing that happened to Delogara in the last one. Well, she died, right? But they're about to go in the temple proper, and well, they're the night before, and then she dies. So, so no sorcerers, basically. It's like, well, why not have one of the sorcerers make it all the way through to the end? They could help you. I mean, it would be such a different story. It wouldn't be the same. I just, I'm sorry. It, it, it just felt so much like the same. I did not like that. And then we have this running interaction between Chalka and Kenna, where Chalka is always pushing his buttons, and Kenna's always getting angry, and that's just silly. It was interesting. It was fine. I don't know. I did not particularly care for Chalka or Kenna. They were there. They were adept. Chalka gets stabbed once and, you know, has to wait again. One thing I really did like was Ushul, who is the person and one of the gods who's betrayed, but not made into a sword. He's basically a body snatcher. He comes in, takes your body. Well, he gets, takes willing bodies or semi-willing bodies and then does his magic and gets power from suffering. But he is weaker because he uses his own body for strength. I like Dushul. He was pretty cool. I like the manipulation of Galo, the prison boy that he takes with him, that he tells him these stories, and he's like, I'm going to tell you a story about this, and then he can go and do the thing. And then at the very end, he's like, I'm going to tell you a story about sacrifice. And basically, you know that the Ushul is going to take over Gallo's body because the whole time he's been needing a new body. That would be something I wish had been a little bit more unknown. Like, ooh, did it? Did it not? Like, obviously he pretends to still be Gallo, at the end of the story, but is it? We know for a fact that it's not because, you know, we're smart. We can read the book and see between the lines. I just wish there'd been like one or two fewer lines. Uh, predicting that Alanda was going to become the successor, that was apparent from almost the beginning of the book. As soon as they announced, or she somewhat announced or told Arik that his quest was to kill Timulus, I knew that she would be picked as queen. There was a slight, a slight chance that maybe Ark would be king, but I was like, no, that's not him. He's he's either going back to Darbo or he's dying. And he died, and I felt bad about that. I didn't like that. Now, I did like one other random thing here before we close up. I liked that Agnes, when she saw Lenda's head, did decide to not share that information with Ark. I liked that she was not like, I'm just going to tell him because... I would both want to know. No, he doesn't need to know this. It doesn't help him. I like that. And I like the character of Baca and Timulus in this, like, because Timulus is Baca. And I liked that character. He felt more real and more personable 
than a lot of other characters. Like, he has these feelings, and he's sharp-tongued, but he's, you know, scared of certain things. Well, he pretends to be scared of certain things. I like that character. But almost immediately, I knew that Boca was something else, that he was going to be quite special. I had thought maybe he was Pembar. Turns out Pembar's dead, you know, because Timulus killed him right before they got there. I was like, again, why, why do we have to... Why didn't you kill him earlier? Why did you kill him now? He's not even close to you in power level, like, so much. But I think I'm going to have to wrap it up there, everybody. Thanks, for, thanks, everybody, for listening to me talk about Sin Eater, the second book in the Iconoclast series. It's a decent book if you want a shot-for-shot remake of the first book. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to LibromancyPod at gmail.com. Thanks to David Hillowitz for the intro and outro music. You know, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And remember to slay with the magic of books. <laughs> <laughs>